Hello and welcome to our deep dive into the mysteries of Enodia, the road goddess. Literally, her name means in the road. This is a title that is often applied to Hecate and is the source of her kind of modern association with crossroads. Um, it's also applied to Artemis often in the deep history artemis and hecate were syncretized is the fancy word for it they were seen as together and they share a lot of attributes and the different ways they were understood in different regions um, and, but also there was an older um, thessalonian goddess and who was called anodia where the title comes from so this is one of my favorite aspects of the goddess to explore. So I'm happy you're here watching Angela and I get in to the mysteries of Anodia, who is a very complex spirit. Deeply complex. Deeply complex. And I think, you know, like one of the themes we've been, as we've been doing these different goddess talks over the past several months, that all of the goddesses are complex and nuanced and that mm. there is this phenomenon maybe you could describe it a little bit like a, i always say they flatline them but but you have yeah. some really good thoughts on how goddesses were changed as civilization kind of took hold during the greek and roman era yeah there were a couple of ways in which they were changed right so when one culture colonizes another and this definitely happened with the greek region all of the all of the relevant gods that are still being worshipped get folded into the existing culture's mythology. And in the particular case of the Greek pantheon, one of the reasons why we know the Greek pantheon so well in the Western world is because it was so neat and clean. And that was intentional. In fact, there was a real effort made. You can see this quite nicely in the Homeric hymns, for example, mm. where a lot of older goddesses, older gods and goddesses get kind of revisited and their origin stories are explained. For example, Apollo and Hermes are like this. These are much older gods, but the function of the Homeric hymns is to create essentially a color band for them. So it's very neat and clear what their function is in the larger pantheon, which is one of the reasons why it's so easy to work with them. But they were also much more complex before. In the particular case of the goddesses, you also have this effect where <clears throat> in addition to their dynamism being flattened and sort of pressed into a cylinder, I guess, something more accessible. And we talked last time about how anthropomorphization, anthropomorphization of like the different dynamic qualities of goddesses gets flattened into things like maiden, mother, and crone mm -hmm. to make it more accessible, but also it really narrows their function to these really specific female functions, um, particularly in a patriarchy. Um, with goddesses, this is what you see because um, the culture that conquered Greece was functionally patriarchal. They're the ones who came with Zeus, for example. Mm. Um, and so the goddesses specifically got a really particular kind of flatlining. And a lot of them, just like Hecate, like Enodia, like Artemis, sort of get um, their more liminal qualities folded into each other. And then, of course, from the from the Greeks, the Romans developed their pantheon. Yeah. And so we see this like carryover of Enodia that kind of progresses through 
Hecate, Artemis, sometimes Persephone, and then becomes in Roman associated with, with different goddesses or spirits. So um, Diana as trivia, like which mm. means of the roads, we're going to talk more about what trivia actually means and and other figures, because you found a couple of other figures that were associated with roadways in Roman yeah. religion too, right? So yeah. Lots to dive into, kind of the big picture themes of Enodia, if we go back to her roots in Thessaly. Um, she was also revered in Macedonia, which we're going to talk a little bit about too. And I think a couple of notes before we get in. First of all, as always, we'll undoubtedly talk about really difficult subjects that most likely will include sexual violence, um, suffering, and so on. So. This is not a heavy episode as much as Medusa, but certainly Anodia's connection with childbirth, women, particularly women who had been marginalized or victimized, that Anodia as a spirit uh, was really important for, for childbirth, children, um, really vulnerable people, and that this energy often is associated with what we would call great trauma today. Anodia yeah. as this type of spirit that helps those who are having difficult journeys is, is how I would describe it in modern terms. So we'll be talking about those things as always. Another one is we've done Medusa and Circe and kind of some of the more widely known uh, goddesses. And I think with Enodia, because a lot of the qualities of Enodia have been so like passed on to Hecate, Mm -hmm. um that what kind of happened like how that worked that lineage it really can't be extrapolated from what you said earlier right that the, yeah. that all the deities went through this huge transformation um starting with the early days of what we would think of classical greece like where they kind of came how they entered that time um, and how they left that time when they went yeah. to the Romans, there was this huge transformation where they became very neat and tidy. And yeah. at the same time, society had a need to change how the feminine divine was viewed because the separation of men and women's roles and who had power and who didn't have power and and all these things that underwent this great transformation over those thousand years or so. So women became much more restricted in their movements. The goddesses became much less powerful, often vindictive. And then mm. we get into the darker aspects of uh, Anodia that get kind of carried over to Roman Hecate and Diana and so on. And then those aspects of Hecate kind of trail her right into the modern age. Yeah, she but really of, takes her torch. Yeah. She took her torch, <clears throat> but she was really cut off from all of these other Anodian aspects, like being a protector, um, being involved with children, being really quite benevolent, and also having this, this side of really being quite capable of terrifying and yeah. of you know, so all of the good stuff 
that Hesiod wrote about in the 8th century BCE about Hecate as this very kind and powerful, but also intimidating goddess um, that by the time the Romans kind of started to get their hands on her as Christianity took hold, you know, all of that good stuff about Hecate went away. And then we end up with eventually the Hecate in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Right. So that there was this long period of time where all of the beneficial aspects of Enodia were kind of scrubbed off until she became this, like, like you said, crone figure uh, or hag, you know, that's kind of like yeah. associated with. Or just like a spirit who steals children. Or steals children when originally Enodia was associated with both protecting children and perhaps stealing children. Like the goddess was that complex mm. that her power was over children. It could yeah. go either way, right? And, yeah, exactly. and, I, and the need to be like, no, she doesn't do any of those beneficial things because the Christian God is in charge of all that. And so anything goddess related over time becomes really like vilified, minimized, it's weak, it's passive. And then you end up with like kind of the beatific Mary figure who instead of being like, venerating Mary's courage for what she, you know, like for what it took for her to have a child like that, to being like, oh no, you know, she was just super passive and she's just holding the baby and she doesn't do anything. Um, yeah. But, I mean, and obviously there's other ways. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna say, obviously there's other ways of understanding Mary. I'm not, I'm just saying like yeah. the big thing that you see in church windows. Yeah, exactly. She's always just this devout mother who's nurturing, but even Mary, the Christians really didn't want her in the cults. They had to incorporate her because they couldn't smash out goddess culture in so many of the regions that they were trying to conquer. So they did create this, the closest thing to an ideal feminine figure that they could have who was still secondary to these primary male figures. But interestingly, you know, we talk about this a lot, the cults of Mary that exist in various regions of Italy or France or Corsica, for example, they feel really pagan, you know, right. and still they're there. very empowering and see yeah. Mary as, you know, a very powerful, she's a very powerful spirit yeah. and multifaceted. Exactly. And, you know, there's always kind of, like you said, she feels very pagan. And I think in the sense that to be pagan is to, like have a deeper connection to the land and to go outside to be counterculture. Yeah. And, you know, like, so if mainstream churchy Mary in the Catholic church, because is, if she's this, you know, holding the baby and, you know, and Mary Magdalene and the women who tended to Jesus on the cross, if they're all but forgotten, right. Then that's the official thing. And then of course, in um, the Protestant faith, Mary's like been removed. So, do you want to know a funny anecdote? I do want to know a funny anecdote. So when I was a kid, I grew up Christian and every year the youth group would throw these like, um, you know, these big uh, sort of these musicals. And we all had to learn these songs that were telling a story about Jesus. And we tried to make it fun. And we did all our cool teenage dances so we could be teenagers. And um, 
I did a I did a solo for a song called Telephone Telegraph Tell the World. <laughs> and, and it was basically about different feminine figures in Christianity, right? Like Rhoda, like Mary, I can't remember them. But the entire function of the song was, uh, I think it went, telephone, telegraph, tell the world. For good news, the Lord uses girls. On any occasion, they'll tell of his salvation. <laughs> like it was basically like, we function to gossip. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, hooray hooray <laughs> yeah. um judith esther mm. i think you already said ruth yes esther ruth ruth was great yeah there are so many amazing women in the bible yeah esther also had pagan origins didn't she she's yeah. quite a mythic character yeah so but i love how you bring the telegraph te what was it again say it again telephone telegraph tell the world that's that's how god uses girls that is how god uses girls well we're gonna telegraph telephone tell the world about anodia but <laughs> like you hit that is so brilliant because when we're considering like ancient anodia <clears throat> like there were no telephones or telegraphs mm -hmm. so to be a road goddess there is that aspect of communication. And I think this is where our friend Hermes, mm. who had similar powers, right? Liminal spaces, roads, all of those herms and things at the side of the road mm -hmm. to him and his power over communication. Yeah. Because that was how the word got out. Yeah. There was no other way to get the word out. Exactly. Someone had to hit the road. Yeah. Yeah. Merchants had to exchange things. Hermes was notably also, he was a fertility god of a principle called heteric love, which is specifically companionship love, right? Like road trip love, basically. So there's that sort of function of, you know, going out on the road and making friends and developing these mutually beneficial relationships. And, I, and something that you and I have been talking about for months now, since we first listened to the Ideas episode. So Ideas is this great mm -hmm. podcast so that we good. both love. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like serious treatment of ideas. So it can be about anything. So yes. several months ago, they released an episode on the differences between female travelers or wanderers and male travelers are wonderful wanderers mm -hmm. and the amazing name of the flaneurs and the flaneur yeah i love this so when we were prepping for this we were talking about one of the big things with anodia like i like to i like for us to have a central question like mm -hmm. for one really short question like what are we going to talk about and so the question I came up with was, Anodia, where'd you go? Mm -hmm. Because in this episode, talking about the flaneur, so that's the male who just wanders around. Yeah, no, like, no place special to go, just kind of tarrying, looking yeah, through windows. Wandering, living the dream, maybe working here, or you know, you'll get a job here and work, and then you'll travel some more. And yeah. you know, you're just, it's the nice life. Yeah, not the worried about the, the mortgage or anything. Often these are rich people, like trust fund people, or like mm -hmm. I guess they would have been like royalty back in the day that could. Yeah, they were like, probably noble. Yeah. yeah, they had the leisure to spend so much time just walking around, hanging right, out, like a man yeah. of leisure. 
but they mm -hmm. were wanderers yeah. and how for women like this is unheard of even today you travel a lot by yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and would you say like even today being a woman traveler out there alone in the world do you think it do you still raise eyebrows sometimes it's tricky, yeah, because people wonder if you're alone. They they often offer advice, like, don't say that you're alone. You know, it's better to be in a group. Like, it is true that you have to think about certain dynamics. I think that you have to study regions more carefully to make sure that things are safe or, you know, whether there are lights on at night if you end up somewhere strange. So, yeah, you have all these things to take into account. But I think that maybe the big takeaway, unless you're, like, a tourist, because I suppose tourism is a lot more normalized now. There's this feeling of a like a woman just sort of wandering around outside or having a coffee by herself, like either she's waiting for somebody or, you know, like she should be going somewhere. You know, she has some place to go. I do. I think that they mentioned this in the ideas podcast, too, because um, I really like to eat alone and like just really nice dinners or lunches on a terrace or something. And my ex-husband used to say, that's really sad. Like that's very depressing. And sometimes you'll get approached. Um, but uh, the woman from the Ideas podcast was talking about Ernest Hemingway, I think, in a, movable, in a movable feast, talking about, you know, this woman that he was seeing at a cafe. And, uh, you know, he's kind of fantasizing about her and writing her into whatever little story he's writing. And then at some point she just sort of glances up um, like something changes in her behavior. And he says something like, a, oh, she's waiting for someone. So she's not mine. You know, there's always this automatic assumption that we can't just be out in the world doing nothing or enjoying our own time. Like we're always maybe belonging to someone else or waiting for someone or just this idea that he was looking at the stranger <laughs> and he had this whole fantasy about possessing her. You know, it's a really strange, you don't necessarily do that with men that you see alone at a cafe. I think that's true. And I think, you know, there are some like cultures and religions who still put heavy restrictions on women going out in the world by themselves. Certainly, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I think like we still live with this. Yeah, that's what's yeah, happening with yeah. Afghanistan now, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the girls can't go to school anymore. They have to get permission to go anywhere. Yeah. So it's this whole idea that the woman's place is in the home. Mm. And that out in the world, being a flaneuse, out wandering, or even being a woman with purpose out in the world, that that's not where women belong. A woman's place is in the home. And a yeah. man's place is in the external world doing yeah. external things and and that's where you know this really became solidified as city 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 states started to take hold and that organization during the greek the early greek period of you know we're coming together we're living in this kind of environment and there's going to be really specific jobs mm. and work as cities grew these categories got much like firmer yeah. Um, and, and we still live with it today. And into all of this, of course, is Anodia, mm. the, the feminine spirit that is literally in the road, governing all roads, not just crossroads, which I also, I've always found that weird. That it's like, oh, Hecate is a crossroads goddess. And it's like, and I, I've always been like, well, actually, 
like if that's how you experience her that's amazing mm. good for you but in historical terms anodi is not a goddess of crossroads she is the road mm. right so not just a crossroads although there's some significance around the crossroads for anodia um but that she is literally the road she's the journey yeah um and she's the protector but she's also the one that's associated with nefarious spirits look so it's all of this and i feel like even when we just talk about hecate of the crossroads it's like but she's got the whole other road too yeah. not just the junctures exactly <laughs> like you're yeah. you're still flatlining her you're trying yeah, to give there's her this a whole little journey. Time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Someone else is in charge of the roads. We just gave Hecate the crossroads. Yeah. <laughs> like when you have to make a choice. <laughs> we had to make at one point in time there was a choice made, and Hecate only got to keep the crossroads. The, yeah. the negotiations did not go in her favor. Mm. And then the crossroads became associated, of course, with malevolent spirits. Mm. And you know, we see anything that can happen to you. Right. When it used to be like she had the whole damn road. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hermes had the, there was other many other spirits associated with roads, but, you know, Anodia ending up as, you know, that Hecate where she just gets the crossroads. Um, I've always found that kind of weird. I love Anodia and I love saying that she's a road goddess or the journey goddess. Yeah. But I know that's not popular because people will say, Hecate is of the crossroads. Yeah. Like and it is also, yeah, for the journey itself, it's more common to see male gods or male spirits. Like people would be more comfortable with the idea of Hermes, even with the negative <laughs> potential connotations of Hermes on the road, um, than they would be with the idea of Hecate being associated with the full journey. Even if she's the one who, for example, leads Persephone out of the underworld. She led her on the full journey. Mm hmm Yeah. So... I mean, and what is that? Like, so there's this general discomfort we have with the feminine and roads. Yeah. Which is strange. But, you know, like, and even now, like, you and I went on a quest to find, like, Christian saints and so on that were associated, there were women and were associated with roads and journeys and there's a few kind of like minor ones wandering around the foothills of italy and so on but right. um not literally they're long dead um but say christopher would be one i think that a lot of people are familiar with today um and also jesus there's a lot of jesus imagery true. around yeah. jesus being like you know like that footprints poem yeah, footprints no. on the sands of time. Yeah, or just Jesus wandering the desert, right? Whereas, like, it is true, the feminine spirits and the saints that we found, they, they tend to be purposeful. So where did the, so that's why my, the question became, Anodia, where'd you go? Hmm. It's like when we get in the car today, like we call, most people will call cars and other vehicles that go on roads, she. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing in France too? Yes, une voiture is a girl. Yes. So, <clears throat> in a way, Anodia is 
uh, is still with us, but she's like the vehicle itself. Like her the spirit. container. Yeah. <clears throat> right? She's the container. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because I, I think that's, I don't think that's wrong. Like, I, I think if you look at the ancient history about how in Thessaly and earlier versions of Hecate were understood, that makes sense. Like, Anodia is the road and the vehicles that go along it, like horses. Anodia, yeah. of course, is associated with horses. So it make, so in a way, even though we're not consciously doing it, I think calling cars, because there's no good re reason. I mean, you know, I've talked about some of the theories why people think this is. Yeah. But there's no, like, actual reason that yeah. we call vehicles female, except that there's some vestige of that, like in our primordial, deeper self that says there is a spirit of the road that is feminine. Yeah. So I think our vehicles, this is me saying this, our vehicles are in a sense, temples of Hecate. <laughs> GPS also tend to be female voices for lots more complex reasons, but yeah, the principle is essentially the same. It's the same thing, right? It's yeah. the, the guide on the way because our communication like the airways, the air, like we, the roads we follow are not just physical roads anymore. Yeah. Right. There's fiber op and all those other roads of communication. Exactly. Yeah. Like we get to, like we get to places over invisible waves these days in a way that, you know, like 3000 years ago, like they didn't have that way. They had the road was the only way to communicate. Yeah. Outside of your kind of immediate, um, homestead. So, yes. So now, Anodius lives on. So I think where'd you go, Anodia? I think the fact that we call our vehicles female is some remnant of something really deep inside of us um, that that finds that spirit of the road. Yeah, in the I like feminine. that. Yeah. So we have slides. We've been talking for a long time, about, but we have slides. So let's jump in and see what we got for slides. So in my next book, when uh, entering Hecate's cave, which is this um, deep kind of psycho-spiritual journey through uh, our personal darkness to wholeness, one of the chapters is called Anodia. Um, she so I have a summary kind of the, the the big points about Anodia in that book, which is coming out in 2023. So based on this, we see like this idea of um, Hecate being connected with the crossroads, Rose, um, and also the idea that this figure had a special kind of relationship with people who might be at risk when they were on the road for different reasons. So let's go deeper into the research. Um, so this is a great book on religion and society in ancient Thessaly. <clears throat> um, so one note to make about Anodia is there's many different spellings. There's at least four different spellings for it. And I think most of the excerpts from the text that we're talking about today, I think they all cover all the possible spellings. So as we kind of work through the slides, 
you'll notice different spellings. It's all the same goddess. It's just the translation is a little bit different. So I put Anodia in Greek on the slide just so you can see what it looks like. So this is a really great kind of deep dive. And it's I really like this book. I love, I love, I think part of me was someone who should have studied ancient religion because I love reading, like I love myths, obviously myths are amazing. And I equally adore reading about how ancient people understood and also practiced their beliefs in terms of religion. So this is a great book yeah. if you like that. Um, so what do we know about the earliest origins of Anodia is that she was associated, She, they believe she started in Thessaly, which is just, I've got a slide for that. So she started in Thessaly um, and then into the Hellenistic times she becomes associated with Artemis and Hecate, and there's a lot of epigraphs that say like Artemis Anodia or Hecate Anodia, um, and that there's very few literary sources. So there's not a lot of mythology. There's not a lot of iconography or art about Anodia, but there are many um, like artifacts, like things like votives, so like little altars or little shrines that they would have at the, the door to the house and so on. There are like a collection of them that are dedicated to Anodia or Hecate Anodia or Artemis Anodia or Artemis Hecate Anodia. Um, so that's the, the image you see there. That's from Macedonia. So that would have been later so the Thess in Thessaly, she kind of dates back to about the time that Hesiod was writing um, the Theogony and the Catalog of Women. So about the 8th century-ish before the Common Era, and then right into in Macedonia, which would have been like a, a few centuries before and after that Hecate and Nodia artifacts have been found in Macedonia. So before and after the start of the common era. So we're talking about like a thousand year span of history from when her first records in Thessaly to these Macedonian artifacts that they found. So there's a long period of history that in different areas of the ancient Mediterranean, they were talking about either Anodia or Hecate Anodia or Artemis Anodia and in all of these different places, common was that the goddess has um, attributes like, so in this, they talk about like poisons, ghosts, malevolent spirits and witchcraft, childbirth and child nurturing and so on. So there, there's this Chthonian or underworld or darker aspect to her as she kind of morphs through the century she gets darker and darker and scarier and scarier basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. i did find one picture of the remaining um like the sorry what's left of a temple of anodia and melitana Mel melitaya in thessaly 
So I had to do some hunting. I actually found this on Pinterest. So this still exists. I did actually look it up on Google Maps and it's all fenced in. You can't go there. So, but it does exist. This, this is all that's left of it. Just to give you a little bit of a map, because I know a lot of times I throw around, like in the ancient Mediterranean, there were all these, you know, like, so we'll talk about something happening in Attica or something happening in Laconia. Um, you know, like, and another thing I get asked fairly often is like, what's Hecate's story? And I think we need to kind of like pause for geography, right? Okay. And understand that, first of all, like the earliest records of Hecate date back about a thousand years before the common era started and then kind of sweep through right into Roman times. So we're talking about like Hecate being called Hecate or Nodia or Hecate Artemis and so on. We're talking about like at least 1200 years of history in a big region. And that not unlike today, different regions had different practices and different religions and did things differently and understood the world differently. And so there is no one right story yeah. about most of these goddesses. Like even with Athena, if you look at how Athena is so diverse, you know what I mean? And so yeah. there's this progression, there's a chronological progression where the goddesses change, but there's also like a geographic diversity that's happening and not just to heck like I said Athena Artemis Artemis at Ephesus like so there's this is there was a lot of diversity back then and what happened because of the repopularization of the Greek pantheon during the romantic period and the translations that were made you know they were really picking like first of all what they had at the time and for source data and then also like what they wanted to emphasize so the ancient Mediterranean area, it spanned a long time and it was very diverse. So there is no one right Hecate or one right Athena or one right Artemis that in the different areas, they would be associated with, with various things. And yeah. I think for me, like, how I teach it and how I organize my next book and how we organize Covina is that instead of like doing Athena month or doing Artemis month or doing whatever month, we do an aspect. And so this month, the aspect is Anodia, which is, you know, the goddess of the road, the goddess of journeys and crossroads, of course, yeah. and all of those things. But Anodia also historically has a lot of like a lot of complexity. And what this great book says is that there's like, Academics have a hard time pinning down Anodia because she's a mysterious figure and she's associated with so many things that perhaps made sense 2,500 years ago in this part of the world. But to us, like it doesn't make sense when someone is a benevolent chorotrophist, which means guardian of children, and also associated with evil spirits that, suck, that, that, spirit, that take children away in the night. Like that just yeah. doesn't make sense to us anymore. Yeah. But they could have seen things and did see things really differently. Yeah. Yeah. So Thessaly, um, Attica is where Athens is. And, you know, like there are different cults of Hecate and Artemis, like 
associated with the Enodia aspects of them, like in many of these areas, and also in Karia, modern day Turkey. Like, so there's this whole big region where these things are taking place. Yeah. So we are focusing a little bit on um, Thessaly and her origin. So this is an old relief of Zeus. So Zeus in different areas was associated with different powers. He was always like boss god Zeus, but he often had different like epithets or names. Like he would be a different flavor of Zeus. So one big Zeus, it's kind of like the different Batmans. <laughs> like they're still Batman. <laughs> I just say this because when my boys were little, you know, they'd have action figures. And you know, like Batman would have this suit on and had these powers, but he was still Batman. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah Batman was a really different guy from who he is now when I was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Zeus is Batman. So, in Thessaly, a, a particular, Zeus had a particular kind of costume and set of powers. And he was, there was a couple of different Zeuses, but the one that's associated with Anodia, either as a standalone goddess or as in, they just called her the road goddess, but everybody knew it was Artemis or Hecate. Mm. You know, that, that could be another possibility, right? In these sources. Yeah. So there is a particular god Zeus from there. And you can see uh, he's here. And there are the, I don't know what you would call them, the devotees, the parishioners. Mm. Um, and then there's a female figure. And I thought it was interesting, like, I looked this, I looked the figure up and tried to find like who they thought the woman was, because it would make sense that it was Anodia, because mm. in this time in this cult, it was always Anodia in this particular Zeus, it wasn't Hera, for example. Mm. Um, but they didn't even bother to talk about who the woman was. Naturally. 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 Anodia, where'd you go? Um, some of the evidence of Anodia's popularity in, in Th um, Thessaly are many beautiful coins. Mm -mm. This today, I love these ancient coins. So here are a few, I just put up a few examples. So these are from about the fourth century BCE. So you can see here, here is beautiful Anodia wearing her laurel crown. So bay laurel, of course, was associated with with divinity, with royalty. It was also associated with like prophecy and divination um, and being a champion. Because if you could foretell the future, then you would come out on top, right? So here she is wearing her laurel crown and on the other side of the coin is the lion. So, you know, you get an idea of how a society viewed figures by looking at coinage like even today if you have coins in your wallet or your purse go and look at them and they tell the story of the society that you live in yeah. so you look at ancient coins for the same reason so here is another anodia uh this time she's on her horse so very lady godiva pardon me very lady godiva very lady godiva she's on her horse and away she goes um and then the lion is on the back too so i think it's interesting that hecate is really like if someone said today what's hecate's animal what would you say the dog the dog or the right yeah um 
but like dogs were viewed differently 2,500 years ago than we view them today. We have a very positive view of dogs overall today, right? They were often scavengers. Yeah, they were scavengers. They were on the fringe. Um, they were associated with the underworld and so on. And, you know, like, so you'll see, for example, trying to think of, there is that famous kind of plate of Hecate with a dog mm. from the Hellenic era. Um, and sometimes you'll see Artemis with a dog too. Mm. But a lot of times they're featured with other animals. So it's, I think the, the hyper emphasis on Hecate's hounds is more of a modern invention than what would have been known 2000 or 2500 years ago. She would have been associated with many animals and the, the kind of like the qualities of that animal when they were paired with her would have represented how she was understood. So yeah. if you put the lion, like the king of beasts on the opposite side of a coin with Anodia, and you put her on a horse, that she's a very important figure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you look at later images of Hecate, like that kind of walking Hecate with the, the dog, um, you know, like she's not, she's, I love that. You know what, when I've, I should have put a picture of it up, but it's a very common, it's Hecate, she's walking and the dog is kind of long and looks very, a greyhoundy, mm-hmm. and you know, it's very different. Like this is Anodia here is very powerful, and it's referring to a figure that's very important in the society. It's this isn't a work of art; these are coins, right? This is the currency. So the government felt she was important. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, an individual artist may paint something, but that doesn't mean that everybody in a society um, shares a belief, but. There's a lot of Anodia coins that exist from this time. Yeah, actually, I did find a, a cute little myth from the the city of Ferai. Okay, give it about a, yeah about the birth of Anodia. In fact, so Ferai is very particular in the in the larger Thessalian <laughs> context in the sense that like a it created like in its mythology a very particular close connection to Anodia. So the story goes that she was actually at the birth of the city in the time of Ferris, for whom the city is named. Um, she is found as a baby just in the wilderness somewhere by his shepherds. So she grows up with the city. So there's this feeling of her having this deep relationship with the city, a deep connection to it, which creates like it makes her a kind of protective goddess for this particular city. Definitely she was also seen as a protective entity for Thessaly at large, but there's also this element of, um, you know, when we think of babies being found in baskets, I think of Moses, for example, um, it's, it's also quite rare to hear this kind of story for a girl child, because there's something so inherently dangerous about that. Like you're so vulnerable and you're a baby. Um, so this is also really interesting from the very beginning of her story, at least in Farai, you have this aspect of a liminality. No one knows where she's come from. It's a dangerous sort of mutable context. There's already the sense of she might've come from somewhere else, Mm -hmm. this feeling of travel and being on the road that's associated with her being in the city in the first place. That's really interesting. And it also kind of puts me to mind, um, about Romulus and Remus. Ah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, you know what I mean? Like this idea of like, there's this, there's spirits that um, are associated with the birth of the city. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I can't think I can't think of another female spirit. Maybe someone yeah. watching will be able to tell us a story and post it as a comment about a story where the it's a female figure that is found as part of the yeah the, the as founding a baby. of the city and grows up yeah. with the city. So she's yeah. like that spirit that she's wild, she's mysterious, um, and she also is involved with civilization and governance yeah. and so on. She's kind of bound to the destiny and the thriving of this place. Yeah. And you're right when you said about how like a baby girl left in a basket. Like it's just it's not a thing you hear of. And, yeah, it's not a trope that you see that often. Yeah. And I and I'm put to mind about like how in some cultures, even recently, I think, where like baby girls would you know, they're not valued. So they would be basically left to die or something on the side of a road. So I think like I, even I, I kind of have that bias when you said that I was like, oh yeah, it's like those baby girls um, in some countries. Yeah. Or like a convent doorstep. Right. (laughs) But if you find a male child, well, that's a boom. That's Moses. He's going to lead the people to the the promised land, right? Like he's going to be your Canaan. yeah, that's, so it's a really great point. Thank you. Okay, so on to another academic text talking about Enodia in Thessaly. So this I found was interesting because there's also like um, Pasacrata, which is an, sometimes spelled Pasacatrea and so on. So that's getting into kind of like an all mother aspect of Enodia. So this is in Demetrius. So they're talking about the religious syncretism, which is the merging together of Artemis and Enodia. Yeah. Um, that encompasses the core trophic character of both de- deities and the mutual interest in crossing age boundaries. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's it's not that because when you think, you know how like it's like Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, like. Jesus is a figure and there's other kind of saints and and Christian figures who are really concerned about the welfare of children. Yeah. But something I've noticed, so like we do, well, you and I and all of Covina, we do the the festival of Korotrophus, like on one of the ancient dates of it, which often happens in August. Um, And because that's like the one well-established kind of like we know for a fact that Hecate Artemis was celebrated as Korotrophus guardian of children and we know for a fact that these were the dates that it happened yeah so we we do this every July there were traditionally like three dates but we do it every not sorry July or August usually August and I've always found it interesting that People, when I post about this on the socials and so on, like people will, oh, there's always comments telling me I don't understand Hecate. Still. Still, (laughs) right? Always. Um, And it's like, well, I mean, that's like the flatlined Hecate, magic, poisons, dark goddess, Hmm. you know, like, but if we actually look at the historical record, it was this whole business about Korotrophus 
that was yeah. a very important aspect of Anodia, Artemis, and Hecate. Um, and so this text goes goes into great detail about this Chorotrophus business. So Chorotrophus like wasn't just associated with like blessing babies. Like Chorotrophus was a spirit like for teenagers. Like it was, we would say she was a develop a child development specialist today. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, but she covered the whole area. Zero, yeah, you know, like zero to eighteen. Um, and like we know, I think we did when we talked about Artemis and bears several months ago, we talked about mm -hmm. her cult at Broron where the young girls dressed up as bears. So there was all of this business where children were really associated with these goddesses and played a very active role in their worship. Yeah. Like, so it, it, I think it's a little bit funny sometimes, like how we, like we want to like parcel off like Hecate. I even remember someone who was quite famous. I, I don't know, pagan or witch world. I remember years ago reading a blog, like saying like that this person would never, never do anything with Hecate uh, with her children in the house because Hecate and children, you know, Hecate is very mean to children. Yeah. And it's like, well, you don't understand kind of like the nature of like this kind of great mother figure where yeah. she can be very benevolent and loving and protective of children. And also kind of her shadow side is the the Lamne and the, you know, the ones who steal children away in the night. Yeah. So it depends. Like, so if you are very much kind of in shadow energy yourself, then you're going to get the shadowy Hecate. Yeah, but if but this was also yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, say what you're gonna say. No, this was also. I just wanted to just add to the point by saying this was also very common of older gods, especially in preliteracy, right? Like they always had both of those elements, and you you kind of had to appeal to their positive sides. But when bad things happen to you, you also acknowledge that you were inside their shadow sides. You know, so many of Inanna's poetry is like appealing to Inanna for, you know, like, did I upset you somehow? But also like this, the Chorotrophus thing, it's, I think that a lot of Enodia and Hecate as well, like her different facets make sense. If you also think about the way that, like this is so hard to do because the Western mind and the modern mind is designed in a really different way. Like the Greeks had, you know, five different conceptions of the soul. Um, like the 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 entire spiritual world that you lived in lived outside of you, um, which is something that we talk about a lot. And so when they were hearing a story and when they were interacting with gods, they were they were thinking about it from a, a perspective of their lives and also through time and also metaphorically and also politically and also in terms of the world cycle. And they were doing this simultaneously all at once. So in the particular case of Enodia, you know, just being on the road, you're not only on the road in space, you're also on the road in time, mm -hmm. you know, and when you're a child, that's when you're the most vulnerable. That's when you're going through the strangest transitions of this particular road of moving through time. So it makes perfect sense, in fact. And I think, you know, like childhood was so risky. Mm, so risky. Right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's still incredibly risky. As a mother yeah. of two grown children, it's still very risky. Um, yeah. So there's this 
perception like you know they really would have need needed anodia to watch them along their way yeah so yeah and there's this whole thing about you know like and that lack of separation like the physical world the physical road and the deeper spiritual road like they're one and the same yeah that, they were understood to be the same yeah that for us today it's so hard to wrap our heads around it mm. yeah because your religion is separate from anything else that you're doing in the world for example but religion was also not thought about that way the spiritual was deeply embedded into life everyday life and i think for some people um it still is yeah so yeah I you know agree. what I mean? Like, I think some people, it still really is embedded and it's embedded in society. Like we live in a, I mean, I would say here in Canada, the culture is very secular, but mm -hmm. I think in the United, some parts of the United States, at least, they're still kind of like really entrenched in Christian, like the, you know, at least elected officials are really kind of entrenched in a certain They all have to be Christians, yeah. I don't know, what it's, what's it like in France? Um, so... France is really interesting in the sense that it considers itself, it's laïc, right? So it considers itself a secular culture. Laïcisme is basically the, the idea of separation between church and state, but it's it functions really differently from in the U.S. So in the U.S., separation in church and state is understood as you can do whatever you want religiously. Um, in France, that idea is interpreted as a you can be whatever religion you like, but you have to be French first. So you can't have these sorts of outward expressions of religion, but it's also understood. And, you know, like it's quite obvious so much of our capitalist imperialist Western society is built on basic tenets of Christianity. It's really sort of baked in. So there is still really a very strong Catholic cohort, like a very strong conservative Catholic cohort of the French. But for a lot of the French also, Catholicism is understood as something traditional that you do that you might not necessarily believe in anymore. Like um, a lot of babies will be baptized so they can get married in churches later and not necessarily so that, you know, because they believe in God or my ex-husband, you know, he did the whole, you know, Catholic school thing and got confirmed, but his parents are not believers either, you know? So there's also this idea of tradition that's baked into it, but definitely like, even if you have an example like this, let's take America, which believes it's totally secular, even if, you know, for many reasons it's not. Um, there are so many aspects of our culture that really, you know, they pull from religious belief, right? Like the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism really informs our ideas about mm -hmm. progress, for example, and who deserves to get wealthy and who doesn't. Right, and even like certain types of... Um like Protestant, like certain, um, I'm trying to think, what is the, denominations, of mm. like I'm thinking of like Calvinism and, yeah. you know, those kind of things that really kind of advocated for this work ethic and almost like we don't even pay attention to the journey anymore. It's the destination. So yeah. where'd you exactly. go, Anodia? It's like, well, actually, we don't even pay any attention to how we get to places. Yeah. Like it's, we're so yeah. focused on the destination and we need to to get there as fast as possible. Like, no, we're not stopping so you can pee. No, you're not hungry, it's fine. Like, just hold it until we get there. You know, yeah, like- don't complain. Don't complain, <laughs> buckle yeah. in, shut up, and we're gonna drive as fast as we can and really hope that we don't even pay any attention to the journey. Exactly. Right, exactly. So th that kind of mentality. 
of that kind of i think in christianity it's the whole like in certain type in certain denominations like where it's like the focus is just on getting to heaven and not on living the journey now right yeah exactly because the world is a sinful place like you shouldn't be meaningfully engaged in the world so yeah it's unless you're like proselytizing so yeah it's it's really interesting but also to return to this idea of chorotrophus like the cult of hecate was also really functional right like i think a lot of the dapnon dinners for example where you know you had the scary story because by then hecate was already sort of hardening into this much darker goddess of um Hecate roving around at night with her ghost children and her scary dogs. And you didn't want to look at her. You didn't want to see her. You just wanted to put the meal out in front of the door and not look. And anything that took the food was considered Hecate and you didn't want to see it. But I always think of this as also quite a graceful approach because um, there are a lot of people and also a lot of animals that that food was probably feeding. Mm -hmm. And there's something very dignified about the fact that you really shouldn't look when somebody comes and takes the food because it's the spirit, you know, you just assume that it's the spirit. Anything that takes it is Hecate. Yeah. And, and the people who, I mean, there's been a lot written about this, right? Like Mm -hmm. that, was it intentionally done so was it kind of like well we call it this but everybody knows it's that yeah right or was it really like more of a like averting her like an insurance policy that she wouldn't come and get you but like you said that's much later Hecate yeah it's where we're even at now with so we've reached we're with with Hesiod now and (laughs) And so we're back in time to the origins of Hesiod, uh, sorry, the origins of Hesiod and the earliest writing about Hecate and his theogony. And the book I'm talking about is one of my favorite books that I told you I sometimes get Alexa to play it in the kitchen when I'm cooking because just reading um, an academic text about uh, the restless dead in ancient Greece and Rome having Alexa read it to me is just amazing. So weird how you're into Alexa's reading voice. (laughs) Well, because it's so like, she cannot read this book because there's like a, there's like end notes, every sentence, like you see the Mm -hmm. excerpt, right? So so she she gets to six, she goes six, and then she finds it and she reads the end note. And then she goes back to the text. Oh, I didn't know that she did that. Oh yeah. Like, so you can't even like, you can't make any sense of what she's saying. It's, it's like an spirit. end note that's three pages long. Right. It's, like, it's the spirit. It's the restless spirits that are coming through. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, sidebar. A couple of Geminis here. It's going to happen. Exactly. Um, so th- so we've talked about Chorotrophus and we've talked about the Dempnon and how she becomes this. Um, but we didn't really talk about one of the aspects of Anodia that's really interesting is mm-hmm. this business of like she's a road goddess and it makes sense that she governs thresholds Mm -hmm. and that there were a lot of like little shrines and so on that have been found this is about to hecate anodia like this is the location where it's believed that they would have been so there's this threshold goddess aspect of this too that she is a protector of the home and also that there were bigger statues of Anodia and so on that, and Hecate that would have 
presided over bigger spaces. Mm. So there's this energy that you put her um, like an evil eye almost. Mm. We still have, I always have an evil eye by the door. Uh, that yeah, you put her in, in these places because she keeps the bad spirits away. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we're getting into the good stuff here. So I like it. Now we're gonna now we're going deeper into a different article that's a I think it was um it's an article from the early 70s that okay. is one of my favorite articles on Hecate because it's talking about the origins of Hecate. So if you're looking at the image, so that is Hecate Anodia with a horse from Macedonia. So again, that's later than Anodia and Thessaly, but you still see the horse, although she does have her dog with her. And she's interestingly not on the horse anymore. Yeah. Though the caption says she's side saddle. I can't figure it out. Um, she doesn't look like she's on the horse. No, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> So this is an interesting story. So this comes from um, the Hesiodic catalog of women. And again, was Hesiod one guy or was it, you know, like, who knows? Yeah. But, so generally it's like Homer, like he may have been a person, what, just one person, or there may have been additions to his different writings. There's a That's lot true. of scholarship and discussion around that. But for our purposes, we just say Hesiod. So in this um, article, which I think was like a doctoral dissertation and then became an article by William Berg. He tells this whole origin, he tells the Hecate origin story. So there's the origin story that comes from mythology, whereas Hecate was born um, often of Persis and Asteria. So the stars and then this angry God figure. Um, or she has different parentage. So, but in this one, in the catalog of women, this is where she's associated with um, Iphigenia. But uh, Berg in this article makes this whole argument for something different. Because I certainly have heard from the more like um, casual kind of historians of Hecate that kind of like write in the pagan world. I've heard her linked to Iphigenia before. You've probably heard that before. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but he says it's actually something different. And then, so he tells this story. So the story is basically that Hesiod tells is that Iphimede, after her rescue by Artemis from the sacrificial altar, was made an immortal attendant of the goddess and is worshipped under her name, Artemis, with the epithet Anodia. So Berg goes on to say, since his epithet was properly applied to Hecate as guardian of crossroads, um, Stysochorus and others, so other academ academicians, assume that Hes Hesiod meant to identify Iphigenia with Hecate. But he says um, that there's this confusion of Artemis with Hecate. And in this story, you see this too. It's like, so was it... Yeah. Hecate, what, what became, you know what I mean? It's like, who's Anodia? Who's Artemis? Who's Hecate in this story? Yeah. On the other hand, um, he goes on to argue that you shouldn't overlook that the poet of the catalog really did mean Anodia to signify like a third character in this story. Yeah. Right? So, so that he knew, and this is where it's really important, that the author at the time writing this 2,500 years ago or more knew 
of an old tradition which actually identified Ifa Medea with Hecate. So it's a very it's a different figure. But the important thing here is in this story, the author, this work of literature, the, the author is putting Artemis and Hecate and Enodian like all together in one mm -hmm. kind of origin story where it's Artemis who saves the day. So it's yeah. you can't separate Artemis and Hecate. No. Like no. It, you mean like it, in the, the Olympic Artemis, yes, obviously she's very different. But yeah. the older Artemis and Hecate were very inseparable. Right, yeah. Okay, so I asked you to read this. So this is uh, Medea and Jason's story, but the version we have today is Seneca. So we have a Latin playwright's take on Medea. So writing like, is this like a several hundred years after Euripides' original Medea? Hmm. So Medea has been told and retold and keeps being told. And here we get with Seneca. I love this quote about um, Medea invoking Hecate to do her nefarious deeds. So hmm. I'll let you read the at least the first paragraph. Read 787. Okay. I see Trivia's swift gliding car, not as when radiant with full face, she drives the live long night, but as when ghastly with mournful aspect, harried by Thessalian threats, she skirts with nearer rain the edge of heaven. So do thou wanly shed from thy torch a gloomy light through the air, terrify the peoples with new dread, and let precious Corinthian bronzes resound. Victina to thy aid, to thee on the altar's bloody turf we perform thy solemn rites, to thee a torch caught up from the midst of a funeral pyre has illumined the light, the night, to thee, tossing my head with bended neck, I have uttered my magic words, for thee a fillet, lying in funeral fashion, binds my flowing locks. To thee is brandished the gloomy branch from the Stygian stream. To thee with bared breast will I, as a mayonad, smite my arms with a sacrificial knife. Let my blood flow upon the altars. Accustom thyself, my hand, to draw the sword and endure the, the sight of beloved blood. She slashes her arm and lets the blood flow upon the altar. Self-smitten have I poured forth the sacred stream. Oh. oh, the tragedy. Yeah. So oh. if, you, if you're not familiar with this part of the story or the story at all, this is when Medea is preparing to poison her husband's lover, mm. Cruza. But you can, I love the first sentence because it's like right there, the societal shift in um, Hecate, Nodia, Artemis, who by now to the Romans is trivia. Yes. Right? So trivia, not when she used to be radiant with full full face and all those great things. Mm. Now she's ghastly. You know, and so if you think of the author as reflecting what's going on in society, there's been this difference. And right there in that paragraph, it's like, no, no, no. She's not full faced anymore. <clears throat> it's really yeah. like kind of hits home what we've been talking about. Yeah, there's more of the sense of frenzy and darkness. Yeah, right. Um, and we can't go any further in the story without I think we've already mentioned Hermes. So we, maybe we won't dwell too much on him. But there's also just briefly like Sibeli or Kybeli or Sibyl or Sibeli, lots of ways to say it. Hmm. Like her association with Rhodes, she's a great goddess figure in a different part of the area for the most like, 
mostly, and her association with Hermes and Hecate and thresholds and those being the, the road goddesses and Hermes being the, the figure, like a like a deity figure, but Hermes is always really different. Mm. And then this is a medieval text, I think from the 16th century, the 1500s, where you, by then you can just see how um, Hecate has these three heads. One of those heads is a horse head and Hermes has a bird head, I would say. Yeah. Um, so this is not like a pro Hecate and Hermes text, but it's like at the time, it's like how they were thought of by people who could record such things um, mm -hmm. at that time. And you kind of see they're, they're very animalistic. They're bestial, they're pagan, right? They're pre-Christian. Yeah. So there's that whole, and then, you know, like it's in that context that Shakespeare's Hecate and Macbeth and other works is born, right? Like, so there's this yeah. whole lineage. Um, I mentioned trivia briefly, and I just want to talk a little bit more about trivia. So if we kind of do the, the chronology, I know we're kind of putting together um, like chronology and then and then we're moving geography too. So not only are we like going forward in time, but we're changing locations. So we've, mm -hmm. we've kind of gone from Thessaly through different parts of Macedonia. Through, now we're, we're going to ancient Rome. So we've the Rome, <laughs> right, so we've moved, we've crossed the sea again, and we've moved to ancient Rome and talking about Diana. So trivia sometimes to the Romans was a standalone goddess and also associated with as an aspect of Diana. So answering where did Anodia go when she were with, with the Romans, she became Diana trivia and Diana yeah. trivia has all of the same characteristics as the older Anodia through Hecate and Artemis and so on. So, you know, the crossroads, the road and so on. And this great book, which is Roman religion and the cult of Diana at Aricia, it really gets into why trivia and how crossroads in the ancient world were very different. That the T-junction, you know, like the kind of the plus side Mm. The plus sign that we have now, that wasn't how roads were naturally came together. Roads naturally came together at a Y or a capital T. Yeah. This, so for us, a crossroads is a four-way thing. But for them, the normal crossroads would have been a three-way crossroads. Yeah. So it talks a lot about that and breaks down and, and saying like, so trivia is specifically about this type of naturally occurring junction, as opposed to like when they built roads and they would have a four-way junction. So the author goes on this big kind of theoretical exploration about why that is, which I thought was kind of interesting because even today, yes, yeah. the aspect of Hecate and three-way crossroads, like it persists. Yeah. You know, Hecate trivia. Trivia means the three ways. I know it's weird today because we think trivia has something to do with like what you do when you go to the bar with your friends and you answer questions mm -hmm. on that little mat machine. Yeah. <laughs> but it also it again, like it also makes sense because it it it's about a mind that can go in many different directions, right? Like that has gathered a lot of different kinds of information. 
from diverse places because that's also the principle of trivia, right? Like all of the information is random. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you've like, gathered it along the way. Yeah, so exactly. It's very different than like intellectual knowledge. Yeah, like, like getting a PhD. The road. Like what, <laughs> yeah. what you pick up along the way. Yeah. If you don't go to school for the most part to study like movies or sports or things like that. Yeah. So tri that's trivia. It's of the way. So it makes perfect sense. Excellent point. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this Diana of Arishia, it's there's this beautiful lake um, that is called used to be called Lake Nemorensis. Mm -hmm. And it honored Diana Nemorensis. And that literally meant like Diana's reflection because the lake there was so beautiful mm. that it also was reflected the moon perfectly. So it was a super special um, epicenter of Diana's cult to the Romans. Oh, lovely. So this whole book is dedicated to this. It is like a great book, but it's really hard to get. Um, so the author of this book points out a lot of things that are associated with Artemis. So like the huntress ability, uh, the moon, and this whole idea that all of these things have in common is like there's danger. That mm. you call on Diana when there's danger. So, and also he makes a really interesting point about like what is hunting. So hunting is a crossroads, but it's also mm -hmm. a journey. So he kind of explains Diana's association with the hunt and Artemis's association with the hunt earlier that hunting is about the road. Yeah. Like to us today, we don't have to hunt for supper. So we don't have that same association with hunting that they would have then. Like you go down the path, you have to, you know, like it's a journey. It's not. But it's also, yeah, when you think about it, two lives meet and one yeah. stops and one goes on. Right. It's a total crossroads. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And again, like in older versions of this, it's like not evil. It's just how things are. Mm -mm -mm. Right. You have to hunt to eat. End of discussion. Yeah. yeah. Um, So beautiful. Yeah, aren't they really gorgeous? I was so happy I found those. Yeah. So those are votive offerings. So at this sanctuary of Diana Nem or Francis, Diana Nemorensis, I haven't practiced it enough. Um, where this lake was, so that which is part of Arishia, that people would go from all over for healing. And so these votive offerings were to please her, but they're also like associated with parts of the body that they wanted healed. Yeah, like you leave them in her hands. Yeah, so it's sure. like, you could, these. this is like the intestine, for example. There's an eye, an ear, a womb, and so on, a breast. See the feet and the hands? And I was in Mexico once at a church where yeah. they had something like this, but they used like, um, like shoemaker's props. I used to have one, I don't know if I could still find it. So they like, using parts of the body like when you're petitioning for healing yeah um so that in this temple they still have a lot of these artifacts left from That's the temple sweet. it's really beautiful isn't it yeah it is so then we get into the aspect that's also of course associated with hecate artemis and anodia it's like peonios the healer mm. 
Um, so it's not just the chorotropic aspect, but there's also an understanding that she's, you go to her to petition for healing. So she's not yeah. just the one who averts evil or um, that type of goddess, but at least in this location, people would seek out her healing, which is interesting. So we've gone, you know, kind of like still even like over a thousand years later, um, there's still this idea that Anodia, now called Diana, and specifically Diana Trivia, but mm. she has all these associations that are still the same. Yeah. And to our modern eyes, they seem very diverse, but there's this thread running through them all that it's about this junk, like the road and coming to a juncture. So mm -hmm. it's like, you're sick, you're sick, you're sick. You go here and you meet her and she heals you. There's a juncture, but it's like this specific Y-shaped juncture as opposed to like, you know, the modern kind of plus sign juncture. Yeah. It's also a metaphor for how destiny branches, right? Which makes sense from it. Like if you're thinking about healing, because it is something that could change your life or keep you on this path where, you know, maybe you could die or, you know, you just live with a stomach ache forever. Wait, but, I love uh, that you're saying that, right? Because there's three yeah. options when you're sick. Either you stay the same, you get better, you get worse. Yeah, three exactly. Way, right? So in a practical exactly. sense, it's a three-way crossroads. All exactly. three things are going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. There might yeah. be something there. I think we should think about that more. Hmm. Um, so trivia, of course, also associated with the moon and all phases of the moon. Though sometimes some writers by this point are doing things with like Selene, Artemis, Hecate, or Selene, hmm. Diana, Hecate, where they eat their a triple goddess, a triformis, or a trivia, because we're like, there's also the three embedded in the word trivia, right? Yeah. That they're actually three different figures sometimes. Yeah. But and for those who don't know, Diana is the Roman name for Artemis. So you can really see how, you know, how neatly the Romans lifted the Greek here, you know, like Artemis Enodia kind of becomes Diana trivia. Um, <clears throat> but trivia was an epithet that was really common. Like it wasn't like just Hecate, Artemis, Diana um, had this enotic aspect. It was very common. So kind of mix and match it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's just some evidence how Diana was also a chorotrophus. So she was a guardian of women in childbirth as well. So, mm. you know, we've traveled several hundred years across history. Um, and see these same characteristics apply to like a figure that is associated with roads, but also hunting, the moon, healing, the underworld journey. So you can kind of see like, even though Anodia is a very like obscure goddess that a lot isn't known about her, uh, we've been able to piece together kind of this timeline mm -hmm. of how certain aspects of Anodia kind of traveled into the Roman era. Yeah, I think what we haven't been able to do is kind of like, where'd you go in terms of like, because often what happened with these goddesses, like in uh, what we now call Italy, and mm -hmm. kind of that part of Europe is that they became Christian saints. Yes. And that's where I'm kind of I, I still I'm not content that I've done enough research to see like, who she might who Diana trivia might have become, in terms of a Christian saint. 
there are a lot of there are a lot of interesting stories, right? Like uh, the patron saint of Paris, for example, is Saint Genevieve. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at the time that she existed, like Paris was like it was operated by Rome. So the city was called Lutece. And um, like the story of Saint Genevieve is a, it's a very similar sort of mythos to Enodia in the sense that, you know, she's born and like it's, it's a saint story. Right. So it's you know, we don't know what the story was like before, but it's like, a, yeah, she just uh, she feels dedicated to Paris. And she kind of dedicates herself to the city and becomes its kind of functional protector. And for example, in the Jardin Luxembourg, you still like there are still statues to her. So there's there's this very tight symbolic association. There's a lot about France and Paris specifically that associates kind of freedom and liberty with the spirit of women. Like I'm mm. sure a lot of you have seen um liberty leading the people you know like the french revolution image liberty is a she's literally a woman or like the the idea of marianne which is mm. an, a person who doesn't exist it's just an idea of the republic or even joan of arc you know like there are all of these yeah in christianity you have these interesting legends that that kind of hark back to nodia and i really like the saint genevieve story because it kind of has that similar feeling you know like patron of a city she kind of grows up with the city and uh, functionally there is something still very pagan about the way that she's seen inside the city like there's even a story about how she was raised by wolves in some tellings you know so yeah so Enodia that's where she went like that the spirit of Enodia you know lives on right like yeah. in different ways and that she continues to evolve like what the underlying archetypal nature of who we might call Nodia or Saint Genevieve or by another name, mm. um, that archetype like exists and how we understand it, where we are in the world um, and what time we live in greatly influences how we perceive that archetype. But yeah. it's still, the archetype is the same. Yeah. You know, like you said, so it's very anodic that Saint Genevieve it's the story is even similar. Mm -hmm. exactly. right? So it's like the story is even similar. So, you know, do we want to get fixated on the names of the characters in the story or what the story is actually evoking and drawing up from like what I would call the deeper world? Yeah. You know, the collective unconscious. Yeah. All right. So we're finishing up with the restless dead. So I already mentioned that we do the Korotrophis ritual every year. And this is the, the symbol I developed for the Korotrophis ritual quite a few years ago. That's kind of evocative of the crossroads and children and torches, all those things that are associated with Anodia. Um, we haven't talked about keys and why. So because this, of course, me being the author of Keeping Your Keys, um, that there are several in the restless dead book dr johnson talks about different um like votives and altarpieces and kind of those little shrines that would have protected the house that there's some of those found that you know clearly have keys and are involved with keys so there's this idea that anodia or all the way into Diana and maybe even St. Genevieve, maybe you could find mm -hmm. this out that not only are they kind of associated with like the road, the journey, the founding of the city, this whole thing, 
scary stuff, both illuminated and shadow stuff to do with all of that and the individual homes within it and all those thresholds, but then also be having the power, um, you know, being the key bearer who can open the way to like physical spaces, but also um, to like deeper experiences, like transcendent experiences that you might have through ritual or meditation, like, you know, when the Sybils were in their trances and so on, that they were kind of crossing over, like that was a whole different type of threshold they were crossing over. And uh, we're going to be talking about like Propylaea, which is an epithet that means basically big fancy gate and the goddess who watches over it. Um, so we're doing that next, which I think is really interesting to follow up Anodia because Anodia was also Propylaea, right? She was also associated with keys, locks, and so on. And in the ancient world, in a lot of the areas and the times we've been discussing, um, the wife actually was the key bearer of the home. Mm. So it was a feminine role to have the keys to the home, but not the keys to the external thing, but the keys to the home. Um, and Johnson in Restless Dead makes this really good argument that like Hecate is really about, especially her Enodia aspect, it's really about the home and the journey, like mm -hmm. she calls oikos, uh, which means homestead, yeah. household, uh, which means household. So that of course, like children and all those things are really important. And also the journey, because if you're home, what is the opposite of home is the road away from home. So, you know, Anodia was very much a figure of the state but then is, you know, she kind of transcends. She's also very much like the state of the home. So if you think of like the government as the big kind of state and then each home, each oikos as its own little state within it. Yeah. Which is something we don't, I think it's kind of different in our modern world, but to the ancient Greeks, that is kind of how they would see things. Yeah. And I also, I really appreciate the symmetry of that, because so much of the idea of the journey, like, 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 let's take a look at the hero's journey, for example, there's this idea, you know, you go on an adventure, you're disrupted, and then you always return home, right? And it reminds me of um, the, the Roman goddess duo that I found, who are kind of Enodia-esque, in, and they, they operate as a partnership, and you have um, Abiona, who's the goddess for outward journeys and safe passage, and Adiona, who protects you when you're going home. And uh, so, yeah, you kind of have to, you have to have these two things together. Even people who are leaving home, they're kind of looking for home in a really different way, you know? I think that's really interesting. And, you know, so there's that natural connection mm. between like you're leaving home, you're going back home. And if you're going out into the world, um, you know, like, where are you going? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, like, so there's... A, there's so much there to kind of explore and also mm -hmm. the idea of like that by this time, you know, the the do, the domain of the feminine was the home. Mm. And that's where women had more power, not that they were super, I mean, they couldn't own property or anything, but they had more power in the home compared to outside of the home where they had none at all. They could hold the keys. They could hold the keys. <laughs> they could make sure the children, you know, they could run the household. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, and how Enodia is associated with 
as a female spirit, like going back and forth between that. Also, Oikos is more than a brand of yogurt. I had to say that. You just couldn't resist. I couldn't resist it <laughs> because people, this is the thing, right? So like people think that these ancient myths and archetypes, like these ancient things aren't alive and well today. It's like, so the next time you buy Oikos yogurt, think about it. It's like every time you go for a drive in your vehicle, you're in the temple of Anodia. Hmm. And whenever you eat your Oikos yogurt, that is the ancient term for the household, which was where Anodia governed. Yeah. Sorry. That's where that's where Anodia has gone. She's gone to she's gone to improve your gut bacteria. She has gone <laughs> to improve your gut bacteria. And she's in the car that you drive to get there. Exactly. <laughs> Plus it's funny. Um, so we've talked a little bit about Jesus and Saint Christopher. We didn't talk mm -hmm. about um Saint Helen. Mm -hmm. Who I threw her up there. She's called Helen of the Host. Yeah, so I don't know this one. Oh, yeah, like you will. You like, have a story for you. You don't know this one. So Helen of the Host is actually Ellen of the Ways, who you've probably heard of. Mm -mm. So okay, because we had a meeting last night for something else. Um, you weren't there because it was late yeah. for you. Yeah. And um, someone, the one male member on our team. Uh -huh. He said, oh, Ellen of the Ways. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot all about Ellen of the Ways. But then I had to go and look it up because this is how it is. And I was like, where did she even come from? Like, I know everyone says she's a Celtic goddess, but is she actually? And so I did my research and it finds. Yeah. So Ellen of the Ways is often attributed like Artemis Diana features like deer horns and so on. And of course, like because Artemis, Hecate in the modern world, all their Chorotrophus, all of their home-based stuff, all their Oikos and Chorotrophus gets cast aside. Ellen of the Ways, a lot of that has kind of become cast aside hmm. too. And then she's got these horns and she's kind of like Artemis and all these things. And she's associated with the road and so on. And then I looked it up and I actually looked at an article um, that talked a lot about, I think it interviewed Morgan Dandler who mm. is a pagan author that I really respect because she does really great research. I mean, she's not a, like, she's not a PhD historian, but she really knows what she's doing. And so she had said that this Ellen of the ways thing and the antlers and the deer and all of this stuff, and that she's a Celtic goddess that according to what her research, that this is actually like a modern invention that was invented like in the 1970s or something by a writer. Oh, yeah. So it's not even really a thing, but there is this Helen of the host that was Welsh um, and that she was associated with. And sometimes this um, Helen of the host is called Ellen of the ways, but this was had no Artemis type features. She was a cr early Christian saint. And, and as far as like what I read that there was absolutely no like kind of preamble for Ellen of the ways that would have been like a Celtic goddess of the roads that had deer antlers and so on. Though, you know, it kind of makes sense. I gotta admit, like, I know this, like, I, you know, I, I got read a few things and they were saying like, no, this is like a modern invention. And I was like, but the Romans went to the UK and they brought their deities with them. 
and Diana was popular and she had this kind of whole Anodia thing going on. Plus she had her deer and all the other things. Yeah. And so it perhaps there was something there. Like perhaps there is a, you know, it's one of those, I like, read someone's theory and someone else's theory and it's like, yeah. okay, so neither one of these seems entirely wrong. That maybe yeah. it, it was just a, that she was kind of made up, you know, like the way that like Mabon being a fall equinox thing is completely made up. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not ancient. It dates yeah. back to 1970. Yeah. Well, that is pretty ancient. It's 50 I don't know. Maybe these things, I don't know. The Ellen of the, I'm curious about why she's called Helen of the host. Like host could mean like Helen of the many, right? But it could also, I don't know, like it could also be a reference to hosting, the principle of hosting, which would, you know, which is something that you do in a place that you consider home, it's your territory, which would create that natural connection between home and the road, hence Helen, Helen of the waves. But I don't know, like, I just kind of think sometimes these things appear weirdly often in the 70s where there was a lot of psychedelics. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And maybe, maybe they are like, old things, old spirits of stories that just return, you know, they just, I don't know. I know, you know? I totally agree. Like, because I, I know sometimes people are like, well, it was, it happened in the seventies. So therefore it's has no value because it's not like a thousand years old. And it's like, no, it's, it's just how it happened. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, but I know like, but I, I dove into this world for a few hours yesterday. So I thought that was interesting. But then when I'm looking at her description, I'm like, Oh, so Helen of the host or Ellen of the ways. So yeah. you're exactly right. So she helped the Catholic Church build roads in this part yeah. of Wales. And she was a good host. Yeah. Like, yeah. So is that more evidence of where Anodia went? Yeah. Like, I totally, I validate the Anodia investigation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I totally, I buy it. I completely buy it. It, it feels very, it feels suspiciously Enodia to me. Yeah. Okay. So I have one more. So Gana. Yeah. Um, um, Norse, myth, Norse mythology was mm -hmm. Frigg's helper, kind of in the way that Hecate was like the mediator for Persephone. Like, so mm -hmm. that Enodia, like, yeah, she is the road. She's the mediation. You're at point A, you need to get point B. So the mediation, the road is like Anodia, it's Hecate, it's the, yeah. it's the in-betweenness, right? It's the journey. It's not either yeah. destination, except in this case, you know, like Hecate was associated with the home and so on. So there is a destination, mm. but then they would have had like Hestia and other deities that actually governed the whole house. So yeah. Anyway, back to Frigg and Gana. So it's a similar kind of vibe where Gana is like, a messenger she's associated with the road she's got a horse so there's that kind of like enodia idea in the north too you know where she's there's frig there's a big boss goddess and then yeah there's the mediator who goes back and forth i like this i like this and then because we have talked a little bit about jesus and the crossroads and all of this stuff because you hear that like i grew up going to crossroads pentecostal church yeah like it's oh, yeah, that's common, true. That's a very common name, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, not so much in Catholicism, but I think in like modern forms of um, 
the Protestant different denominations, like Crossroads, like Crossroads Church and Crossroads, like it's a big thing. Yeah. So it's like Jesus is really associated with the Crossroads and the journey. Um, but also, fun fact about St. Christopher specifically, um, I read something, I think it was Gordon White, the chaos magician, and he's also a historian. <clears throat> and he was talking about how the entire legend of St. Christopher, you know, sort of like traversing this world with like the baby on him. This is lifted from Hermes Trismegistus. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah, same guy, old crossroads gods. Yeah, old cross. So again, like it's this, these are archetypal forces and then certain figures that express them become, get a foothold in a society. And we give them names. Yeah. Like you see these spirits, like the greater spirits that are beyond kind of like, they don't have convenient human ways. They're not anthropomorphized, right? They're greater than, they don't have human habits. So yeah. we give them human habits to try to make sense of what we know that some deeper part of us knows to be true, right? Yeah. So that's what, so there's so many versions of this. I had no idea that this version of St. Christopher carrying the Christ church through a sinful world, like there must be a hundred different people who have painted this, different versions yeah. of this image. And like you said, Hermes Trismegistus, say it for me. Yeah. Hermes Trismegistus, is it Trismegistus or Trismegistus? Trismegistus, Trismegistus. Okay. I don't know. One of matter. those. Yeah. Um, we <laughs> talk about him for hours. Yeah. <laughs> we won't start. We've gone long Definitely. enough. We got to wrap this up. Um, but it's the same thing. It's that the world is so by this time, like people really started to develop this idea that the world was just super bad and scary. Hmm. And there needed to be like a crossroads figure that would help you ascend to heaven or so on like to get you out of this mess that you yeah. that there were certain things you had to do to prevent the devil from getting you which is not at all unlike about leaving not at all unlike leaving a depnon meal for hecate at the crossroads mm -hmm. exactly right? and not looking and not looking it's like you have to avert the evil you have to avert the evil you have to avert. and this was like an idea that just I think it's still really like big in our society. Like for a lot of people, they think sin is wrong and that they'll go to hell um, if they don't live a certain type of life. And yeah. if they live a certain type of life, you know, the 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 journey will be rewarded by this kind of like beautiful heaven featuring virgins yeah. or Paul or I don't know. It's got a lot. It's a lot yeah. going on in heaven. All I know is. I don't want to go there and I'm not going to end up there. It's fine. Yeah. Um, the best musicians are not there. But this also applies to like political extremism, right? Like there's this very strong, strong strain of good versus evil in political extremism and the sense of, oh, like you saw this a lot when Trump was elected, for example, like I can't have Thanksgiving with my family because they believe these particular things. There is this element also of like averting the evil, you know? It's really, it's really strange. It's really strange, right? This kind of dichotomizing the world. Yeah. And I think if we take one kind of big lesson away from Anodia, it's like to lean into that energy of how they understood her 
over 2,500 years ago, right? That she was illuminated and she was shadow. You know, yeah. I'm certainly no fan of Donald Trump, but like, can I entertain the idea that my family member who is pro-Trump might not be purely evil? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, can I hold that space within myself? And I think like, when you look at this painting of St. Christopher and why would, like Jesus was Jesus. Why would St. Christopher need to help him? <laughs> Cause he's a baby. <laughs> I don't know. Well, like when Hermes was a baby, he took care of himself. So I this think we just true. need to get rid of Jesus and replace him with Hermes. That is a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. Hermes does take care of Dionysus when he's a baby though, which is also a kind of a Jesus precursor, Dionysus. So much to talk about. Jesus yeah. was not an original concept. <laughs> so he was a, what do they call it? He was a cover. Yeah. A cover song. Yeah. yeah. A cover song. I like that. Cover song. Jesus Fine. is a cover song. <laughs> Jesus is a cover song. And there's lots to learn from Jesus. Mm -hmm. We are not hating on Jesus. It's fine. No, no. But these energies are really old. And yeah, like the, I think that one thing that I would also contribute to these thoughts about Anodia is, yeah, just to think when you're thinking about her vastness, you know, there's this sort of like vastness of the journey through space and the vastness of the journey through time, you know, like we're, that's part of the, the roads that we're on. They're physical, they're metaphorical, they're through time. And, you know, these are the many sorts of, universes that we're navigating in a body it's true and to, yeah so i guess the, the two takeaways is try to entertain the idea that all things have shadow and light mm -hmm. nothing is purely one or the other all things have both to varying degrees and that there is no separation between the physical journey and the mystical journey mm -hmm. And we'll be talking about the mystical journey the next time you and I get together to do a class. So we'll be yes. talking about the Sibyls and Pythia, some That'll of be my really favorite ancient figures. Same. So I hope this has inspired you and you've learned a little bit about kind of how Anodia, like the whole thing across time and in different areas, how we ended up with kind of Hecate today, like the way people think about her. And what you can take away from this is that all things have shadow and light, you know, and to seek to understand the world and see shadow and light and that there is a lack of disconnection between what is kind of going around on around us in the physical sense and what goes on like in the psychological sense, but also in the deeper kind of transpersonal <clears throat> sense that those are all very interconnected. I think those are two really challenging ideas yeah. um, for our modern minds to grasp because of what the, the popular forms of Christianity have kind of pushed down our throats and how they, the state and the society have said that these things are separate when in fact, hail Anodia, they are not separate at all. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks everyone.